Hi, this is Brian Knutson, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for joining us again for season three of Compassionate Las Vegas. You have been such a great support and your continued encouragement and notes and comments are why we continue to share this podcast with you. So thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is a familiar face on the podcast or familiar voice for those of you listening. And he does some amazing things in our city and his personal story is what we really want to get into today. So please welcome none other than Brian Knudsen. Hello. Hello, Will. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I am so glad you're here. I really just enjoy you. I've been hanging out at city council meetings, you know, watching online, and you just have such a way about you that is calming and it's contemplative, but it's powerful too. Like you, you just wrap that up and it's really a treat and pleasure to watch and to know the work that you are engaging in, even outside of the chamber council or chamber quarters, whatever you call them, um, is really, really awesome to hear. So looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better today. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. So where I want to start is, if you don't mind, just let our viewers and listeners know what it is that drew you to public service. Uh, so I, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and my, my dad was a police officer. Uh, and so I, I got driven to school from, from kindergarten through most of high school in a police car and he dropped me off and middle school was really, really hard because it was super embarrassing to have a police officer for a dad and being dropped off when you want no one to see you, but he dropped me off in a, in a Bronco that was a police car. Um, and so I, I kind of had that background. There was, there was one day that my, my dad, this stands out for me as a memory is my dad, uh, in plain clothes, they used to drive police cars home because it kind of helped keep the neighborhood safe and secure uh, in, the, in their minds. And so my, my dad, uh, on, his, on his day off, was picking me up from school and somebody was driving with, a, with a, an infant in the front seat of the car on their lap. Uh, and he knew that it was against the law, but obviously unsafe for that infant. And so he pulled somebody over on, on a day off um, and, and kind of knocked on the window and just help that person understand why it would be dangerous to drive with an infant. Uh, and so he came back and he said, you know, whether I'm a cop or a private citizen, somebody has to make the world go round. Somebody has to care enough about other people to talk to them about how, how they can live the better life. Um, and so that was, that was kind of one of my first memories of thinking about public service. I was probably 10 at that time. Yeah, that is really incredible. And I, I love the approach of educating and I, I think that in our highly polarized society right now, you know, we're, we're just, we seem to want to be right instead of righteous. 
we we're seeking really to win instead of you know to make a better community and so his approach is like hey this is dangerous that's why I'm, I'm talking to you about this i think is an approach we all could adapt even with within our own households and with our neighbors and families ourselves so thank you for sharing that story how long have you actually been in this field uh, so I, I went to graduate school um, in public administration. Uh, and so I kind of always had a, a thought in my mind that I would end up in, in government. Um, but I, I worked as a, a 911 dispatcher uh, going through college. And I worked at a, at a hospital prior to college. Um, and so I've been in public service almost my entire life um, from about 18 on. And from a hospital to a public safety setting, uh, into running an after-school program, uh, and then into to government. Um, and then I spent quite a bit of time working in nonprofits as well. So I, I kind of consider it all public service. Um, and even in my job now uh, as, a, as a councilman, um, every, every day for me is about public service. I, I think the world is an amazing opportunity for every single one of us. And to give back is, a, is just kind of a treat and an opportunity that not everybody gets to have. So I'm really appreciative of it. Yeah, so let's rewind just a bit because you said something I had no idea about, which is the 911 operator piece. That, that role to me is so intense, at least I, in my imagination. It's like, you know, you answer the phone, 911, how can I help you? And someone's like screaming on the other end. What was that actually like? Uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, when people, when people call for help, it's, a, it's one of those situations where you have to figure out how to uh, quickly connect with them, quickly calm them down, um, and help them understand that they're not alone. That's probably the most important lesson I learned from that job, um, is learning how to quickly take control of somebody who's not in control. Um, help them understand that there's a lifeline, that there's somebody who cares about them and is quickly sending them help. Um, whether it was police related or, or, or fire related, medical or some kind of crime, um, people sometimes feel alone. And so my job as a dispatcher was to help them not feel alone and assure them that, that someone was coming to help them. And that, that skill set I think carries through in my everyday life is helping people to understand that there are people who care about them and the world is there to, to make sure they're going to be okay. How do you deal with the constant pressure of being needed and having to help people without taking that burden on to an internal place where it's crippling or prevents you from living your life? Um, that's a great question. I, I, I think I've, I think I'm able to turn it on and turn it off. I think for my mentality and everyone's different, so there's no one answer for anybody, but for me, I turn it on and turn it off. So right now the most, um, the most needy people in my life are, are children. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, uh, and they have incredible demands. Um, being, being a parent is, is one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. Uh, they, they have demands that are unending. Um, with adults, it's a little bit different. And so if I have nonprofits who are coming to me and asking me for funding, I'm able to think through with them how they can best accomplish their goals and be part of that that effort, um, as opposed to them needing something for me as we work together to figure out how we can accomplish a goal, um, whatever that goal may be. Uh, for individuals uh, in our community, we have a, a lot of people in poverty. Um, and so I, I think about my role in this world right now is trying to think through the systems. Um, how can we create a, a healthier 
healthcare system or a healthier housing system. Um, and so I guess there's a little bit of disassociation as I try to remove myself from the individual because that probably would, would be harder for me to, to make it through the day. Um, and I think about the broader system is how can we build a system that supports as many people as we possibly can. Uh, and so uh, maybe that's, that sounds a little bit cold, um, but that's kind of how I make it through the day is I, I think about my job and my role in this world is to create healthier systems that will serve the most amount of people as possible. And then the, the neediest part of my life is my five-year-old and, or my now six-year-old and three-year-old uh, who, who demand a lot. Two big things, the, the kids, I mean, that's clearly life-changing and, and person-changing. They're not just a part of your life. They really do become part of your life. <laughs> um, life right now, yes. Yeah. The other thing that I'm hearing is there's a difference between empathic distress where you're kind of uh, more focused on how other people's problems are hurting you and your conscience versus empathic concern where you recognize the problems and seek the solution, but it's not from a place of really self-preservation or I may not be saying that quite right, but it's a, a bigger picture with like you're saying with the systems piece. There's a, a phrase that I've, I've heard and I kind of agree with that poverty is a policy choice. And I just want to hear your thoughts on that from a systems perspective. I think that is absolutely true. I think uh, if you take politics out of that, that, that question, um, I think we've inherently built education systems and housing systems and transportation systems that separate the rich from the poor. Um, we, we concentrate poverty in certain areas of our existence um, and we think about people in poverty differently. We, we don't understand what it is to be in poverty. Um, if you haven't been in poverty, you don't necessarily understand what that means for, for those in poverty. Um, and so all of our systems are, are designed by people who don't necessarily need them. Uh, and that, that's one of the biggest challenges I, I face in, in my role now is really trying to to develop systems that support people in poverty to help them come out of poverty. Um, and it's a very difficult challenge. Um, and I, I oftentimes will say like, it, it's not, we're never going to accomplish it. We're always going to be working towards it. And for some people that's really disheartening to say there's, there's no end goal in sight. Uh, in my mind, it's, it is humanity that that is what we're supposed to be doing is constantly struggling to make it better. Um, and if we lose that struggle at any point, if we give up, then we start losing our humanity. And so I, I believe everyone should be constantly pushing to, to make it a better world, to make it a better place for somebody else. And the systems, that just happens to be my little niche that I think I can make improvements on. So that's what I focus on. Other people may choose to focus on individuals, um, helping another individual out, helping a, a child become everything they're supposed to be, reach their full potential, helping an adult overcome addiction or uh, housing issues. Um, everybody has a role to play and each of us should be focusing on making the world better. And that's, that's in my world is humanity. And what would your six year old say about that? Um, first he would say I'm boring. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I argue with him and say, I'm not boring. I'm super cool. Uh, but my, I, my six year old and my, my three year old, I've tried really hard to, to teach empathy. And I think it's something that you kind of have to teach at a young age. You have to, I don't know how natural it is, um, for everybody. And so, uh, just, just yesterday I dropped off my three-year-old and there was a little boy who was struggling with some separation anxiety and some tears going down his face. He's a little bit anxious about going to school. 
And so I looked at him and I said, I looked at my daughter and I said, is there, is there anything you can do to, to make it a better day for him? And she went over and she just gave him a big hug and she, she laid his, her head on his shoulder and closed her eyes. And it was a real meaningful hug. Um, and so that made me proud because that's, that's empathy. And I didn't tell her to hug him. I, I don't tell my son to hug every single person he meets, which he does. Uh, they, they do that. Um, what I do is tell them to express gratitude and uh, say thank you and, and make other people feel special. And so I think they're learning that skill set. And I wish everybody demonstrated a little bit of that because it would make the world a little better. That, that's beautiful. I, I love kids. I don't have any of my own yet, but um, I've gone back and forth around whether I actually want like permanent kids or if it's just enough to have some visit every now and again, because they're a lot to, to manage and handle. But what I love about them is this purity and curiosity that they bring into really everything. I mean, everything is new, so why not be curious about it? And I try to make myself that way and approach situations with curiosity, with empathy and, and compassion, of course, as well. But more so from the perspective of, I want to understand this. And I won't kid you, living in Las Vegas can be a bit tough. I do uh, have the privilege of providing an invocation for our county commissioner's meeting usually about once a month, maybe a little more often. Most recently, I was mistaken for one of the commissioners and I was heckled. Not a ton of fun <laughs> walking in, you know, to pray and your first encounter is being heckled. But I really, I didn't have time to do this, but I did want to know, like, why was your response in the situation this. Why didn't you greet me with at least a, hey, how are you today first? Now here's my problem. You know, just really fascinated by how we lose some of that as we grow older. Have you found that having kids has allowed you to reconnect with some of your innocence or has it, have you always kept that? I, the lesson that I've learned recently is it's important to to really spend time listening. Um, I think in today's age, we've lost a little bit of that and we immediately jump to a headline uh, or a tweet and kind of transition to, to people and interactions with people. We take a sentence they say and, and immediately start coming up with what you're gonna respond with. Uh, and so look, being with kids has helped me to, you have to sit and listen to them because it takes them a minute to kind of formulate their thought. And sometimes they'll have to say it <laughs> over and over and over again until they kind of, figure out what that sentence is or what they're trying to convey. Uh, and so I've, I've learned to, to really practice that listening skill. And so when I encounter people, like I get heckled um, uh, for, for vaccines or masks or a number of things, um, I, I sit and listen and let people get all of their feelings out. That's a really important lesson uh, that I've learned with kids is you have to let them get it all out. You can't cut them off midstream. You can't uh, be done when, or you can't start before they're done. Uh, and so I don't think that's different between children and adults. If you, if you let an adult get all those feelings out, whether they be negative or positive, get them all out and, and out there. Um, at that point, you can, you can have a rational conversation. Um, some, some, some people start off with emotion and that's okay. It's okay to be angry at the world. It's okay to be angry at government. It's okay to be angry at COVID. It's, it's all okay. Um, on no matter which political affiliation you have, no matter how you feel about it, we all have feelings about it and we have to get those feelings out. Uh, and so 
that's what I've learned about with children is you, you have to, you have to let them get it all out. If you, if you cut it off midstream, it just festers. Uh, and I think that's one of the most important things I've learned um, about being a parent um, has been most useful for me as an elected official is I, I, you really have to let people get all their feelings out there before you can start that healing process. I think that's just, I was going to say it's a parenting tip, but that is, that is a life tip because you're absolutely right. When I think of how we are wired from, you know, a physiological level, not just the psychological piece, but we do, we have to, to get it out in order to even reach a place where we can be rational and can make decisions that are based in, in truth and fact and our highest desires instead of what's happening at the moment. And I think about that when, when you talk about politics, I, I think about how we do rallies, and particularly at the national level, and how the entire atmosphere is really set up to engage that emotional core and to turn off the thinking brain, which for me, I'm starting to think maybe that's where we got off track a bit. I know TV was great because we could see who people were, but I think that's when we first started to shift kind of how we, we thought about it. And I wonder if maybe we return to a place of conversation and to letting people get it out. What, what are you feeling? What's happening? You know, what are you angry about? Get it all out. Say your sentence over and over again. Okay, now let's talk about this. What do you actually want the outcome to be? And work to elect people that reflect that, that reflect our, our highest desires, not our base nature. Even with our, our circles and our business relationships, I think if we took that approach, our society would grow and be healthier overall. I, I would add into that, like, especially right now, but there's, there's, a, there's this sentiment, I think, out there that if we agree on or disagree on one thing, we disagree on a current policy issue, um, that we disagree on everything. Uh, and so when, when I am able to kind of listen to people and communicate with them, what, what I try to say is we may disagree on, on 5% of decisions, um, but we agree on 95%. And if we can spend more time on that 95% of decisions, um, it's a happier place. And it's okay to disagree. It doesn't mean everything about a person is bad or evil. Um, we just disagree on one thing, but we agree on a lot other of other things. So I think it's easier to shift the conversation that way because if you spend enough time listening to somebody, eventually you get to a point where you do agree. Uh, and then the world's a little bit easier and you can have a cup of coffee or, or sit down and, and chat about those things that make you happy. For sure. What about when you're having those conversations? And I've, I've actually been in, you know, coffee shops. Things are a little more open now, which I'm, I'm so grateful for. But just listening. I love to listen. And I'll hear people saying things that are just wrong, <laughs> like factually wrong. And it's really difficult for me. Uh, from a very young age, I've always wanted things to be true and to be right. My, my very first TV appearance was because my grandma, who was a science teacher, decided to fill her tank on Ozone Action Day. And I'm like, Grandma, why are you doing this? You know better. You know this is wrong. And it, you know, again, hit the news and her friends just still to this day don't let her live that down. But it led to a show called The Kid Critic. And that was just me. I'm like, this isn't right. We need to get it right. Not that it has to be my way, although I do like to get my way. Um, 
it, it has to be what makes the most sense with the information we have at the time. So if it doesn't make sense, if we can prove that it's wrong, let's just move on and move on to what is right. How do you deal with hearing things that are just wrong and you have to still approach it diplomatically? Yeah, so in my, in my experience, uh, adults especially are generally not inclined to admit they're wrong. Uh, they do not like to be embarrassed and they don't like to have confrontation that makes them feel weak or inferior. Uh, and so I spend my time building people up and even if they have information that's incorrect, uh, try to talk to them about the information that I have. Um, because I, I found that adults just generally don't want to be called wrong. Um, and so that's, that's what I think is, is challenging in our world right now is there's so much um, information uh, and everybody has their own truth. Everybody has their own feelings of what's right or wrong. Um, and truth and perception get mixed up frequently. Uh, and it's really difficult uh, right now to help people understand that there are different truths out there. Um, yeah. And it's because we're a very diverse group of people in the world right now. And so that's, uh, I try to not take it as, as I'm right and you're wrong. I try to think of it as we're both in our heads, we're both right. And how do I find a way to connect with you uh, where we can move the conversation forward that's in our best, both best interests, collective interests is a better way to say that. I like that collective interest. And I also like softening wrong to incorrect. That just when I hear incorrect, it feels a little better. But you remind me of one of the questions I love to ask in workshops I present, which is what does it feel like to be wrong? And, you know, people list the things that you just mentioned, you know, it doesn't feel good. It, 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 you just feel stupid, whatever, you know, the answer might be. And then I'll say, well, that's what it feels like once you realized you're wrong. But when you're wrong, you feel right, right? And all the heads go like, yeah, that's right. I do, I, I don't know, I'm not trying to be wrong. I'm not trying to make incorrect decisions or, or say incorrect things. So I think even that bringing compassion is that and understanding like most people, 99.999% aren't trying to cause harm. They're not trying to do something that is is not in our collective interest, but they really are trying to make, at least for their world, make that a better place. And for me, that's inspiring and gives me a little bit of, of uh, motivation to continue. Here in Las Vegas, you know, the Valley will include our, our other cities as well. I think we have such potential. I think we could really be a leading force for the entire globe, not just our state or our nation, but I just think we have the potential to truly revolutionize the globe. What do you see as our greatest strength as a community and as a people? Um, in Nevada, and this is one of the reasons why I chose to, to, to run for office in, in Nevada, I believe that it takes us a while to kind of collectively align around a common interest um, and, and move something forward. But when we do, we move forward very quickly. Um, and so most recently, the, like the, the, the Raiders and the, the Golden Knights, like that's an example of like yesterday, Vegas was not a sports town and yesterday and today we're a sports town. It just happened very quickly. Um, so I think that Vegas can move things very quickly when it wants to. Um, Vegas and the state of Nevada and so I, I really have a lot of belief uh, in, in Nevada that, that if we were to align and collectively align, 
uh, and decide that something's important that we can do so very, very quickly. That's not true of other places in the country. Um, I also find a lot of value and hope in that anybody can jump into the sphere of influence in Nevada and make a change. If you're persistent and you're, you have desire and drive and you understand how to create good, meaningful relationships, anybody can do it. That's also not true of other places in our country. So I find lots of opportunity in Nevada. Um, and you just have to be very persistent. And that makes us unique in Nevada. Um, I think as a nation, I think there's so much opportunity if we can listen to each other and let all those feelings come out. And it's going to take a little while. Um, but I find that as a nation, um, we're, we're going to be successful if we can kind of move past some of these uh, challenges we currently face, especially with the dynamics of politics. Um, and then I, I look at it as a, as a humanity as well as overall, this is going to be a rocky path in my, in my uh, perspective. Um, but humans in general are always trying to make it better. And so this is something that we will learn from and, and move forward with. And that gives me hope. I don't know when, I wish it was tomorrow. <laughs> I don't think it'll be, I don't think we've learned our lessons yet. And so when, when we have learned our lessons about how to collectively align and move something forward, I, I think we'll do that. What do you think causes the lengthy process of aligning for us as Las Vegans, Nevadans? Is it the fact that we are so incredibly diverse? I think this is perhaps the most diverse place I've ever lived personally. I know UNLV was ranked as number one in diversity for, for the college campus there. So is it the diversity that makes the process lengthier or what is it? I think we're relatively new as a state. Um, I know I know that sounds silly if you've been living here your entire life, but in the in the collective history of the United States, Nevada is just one of the newer states, and we don't have that institutional memory um, to 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 draw from. And so, it it took New York, and it took um, um, Boston, and it took cities on the East Coast a long time to get to the place where they have amazing education systems and amazing healthcare systems. Nevada just is Brent is newer. And so we're, we're learning and we're learning quickly. I think we will catch up. Um, and I think we're going to catch up in different phases at different times with different pieces and parts of systems. Um, I think the diversity helps us. I think that's why um, we're able to move forward in certain areas faster than other places are. So I, I, I think Nevada is a unique state. Um, it's a, it's a very new state. And so I, I think we'll, we'll learn faster from lessons from around the world and, and accomplish things that, we probably can't even think about right now. You got the great point. And when I think of diversity, I, I wrestle with a few pieces in the way that it, it's commonly approached, which we we've gotten to the place now, of course, after the issues last summer and just, you know, natural evolution of our consciousness where we do as a whole see diversity as a strength. And with diversity, I think sometimes we want different people that all think the same thing or think the same way. And so it's it, almost easier to embrace diversity in those tangibles than it is in the intangibles like values or thoughts. Do you think that there is a way to help people to connect and begin to truly value not just diversity, but difference? Um, in, in my world, um, so I, I get lots of times I get people that want to, to complain 
Um, I mean, that's part of my job is to listen to people. Uh, and so what I try to do is as many times as I possibly can is say, let's, let's go have a cup of coffee. Let's sit down and talk about it. Um, and in a lot of those meetings, we have very different perspectives about the world around us, um, their thoughts about what I should be doing, um, how I should be doing it differently. And so what I find is just sitting down and listening to them is, is the, the very best way. And I learned so much about why, why we're different. Um, and so, um, looking at politics, looking at race, looking at ethnicity, looking at gender. Um, if they sit down and tell me their perspective, I think it broadens my worldview um, and why they think the way they do. Um, and generally in my, in my world, like everybody's kind of focused in on the easy stuff. The easy stuff is some of the, the, the things that we're dealing with. In my opinion, masks are relatively easy. Um, vaccines are relatively easy and we, we focus in on those things. It's easy to divide. It's easy to fight. Um, it's easy to talk about those things in one perspective or another. Um, what's really hard is when you talk about how do we, how do we raise strong families? How do we raise children? How do we provide food for them every day? How do we provide healthcare for our family? How do we provide housing? Those are really tough conversations. And generally those are where our values align. Um, we're generally all inclined to want to make sure that our kids have better lives than we do. We're generally all aligned to make sure that we have a decent quality of life and we can put food on the table. Um, those are the, the values that kind of bond us together is we, we want to have healthy, successful lives and we want to raise an, a generation that's going to be better than the previous generation. Um, everything else is, is easier and that, that's the things that we try to control and try to push. And um, the values, I think, are relatively the same no matter who you, who you are. We may approach the world differently, but... We all, we all kind of want the same thing. We want a decent quality of life and we want to raise the next generation to be better than we are. So much to impact in, in that piece with the idea that most people want their kids to experience a better life than they did. I, I find that to be true. And in my experience, whether I'm you know in Nevada or where I was born, which is Michigan, or whether I'm visiting overseas somewhere, that is really the desire. What I find interesting, though, is there seems to be a lack of imagination, perhaps, maybe a lack of faith, maybe a lack of belief. I think of Walt Disney and you know the, how that was formed and when he brought Abraham Lincoln to life, that process and how that was revolutionary. And it was impossible until it wasn't. And I wonder if maybe we're at that tipping point now where healthcare that is accessible, not, and not just affordable, but affordable and accessible to everyone um, is a reality where quality education is a reality for everyone, where food is a reality for everyone. I'm so excited about the new project happening. Shout out to MGM for uh, what they're doing in, in creating that farming land. But I just wonder, how do we engage that, that imagination and that belief in what is possible, knowing that people really fear losing what it is they already have? So, so I always, I, I get people, I mean, for, for every idea that I have or every idea that's presented to me, there's, there's a, a, a thousand naysayers. They'll say, well, that's just not going to happen in our lifetime. And I always push back and say, you know, it's not real until it is. And <laughs> don't, don't fight something so hard. Say yes to everything you possibly can to make the world a better place. Uh, and yeah, 90% of the time it, it fails. And I, failure for me is, is a wonderful learning time. Um, I've failed lots and lots of times in my life. 
uh, it doesn't mean you give up and you, you don't focus in on the failure. You just have so many things that you say yes to that you're okay with a certain percentage of them not working. And then you focus in on the thing that, that does work. And eventually everything that's not real at some point became real. Uh, so you just never give up. That's, that's part of the fun of being alive. And part of the, the joy of being a human is this, this concept of humanity where at one point everything was not real and then it just became real. So I, I just, I, I have mentored lots of younger folks in my life and I always tell them that have as many yeses as you can to every possible thing. And it's okay if the majority of them fail, because at some point one of those things will become real and then you can, you can have that to, to, to champion the rest of your life. And it's super fun to do that. What I'm hearing from you throughout this conversation really is a long range mindset thinking forward, continuing to move one step at a time till you're there and not really uh, getting caught up in the minutia, so to speak, not getting, getting stuck, but having patience and uh, just keep on keeping on is kind of the, the theme I would, would give what I'm hearing from you. What we all have to work collectively. And so I can't build a healthcare system on my own. And so if the, the world around me is not ready to move as fast as I can, then it's a, it's a team sport. So we all kind of work together. So that's why I, I, it's this long-term planning that I think is really important is working it as a team and not everybody goes at the same pace. So I can go fast and I still have to slow down for those who need to, to be at the finish line at the same time that I do. And for those who are going faster than me, they have to slow down for me too. It's a team sport to make the world a better place. I'm, I'm the one that has to slow down. I'll admit that. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, I'm, I'm forward thinking, very visionary. I'm like 10 years in the future all the time. And I, I know sometimes that can be hard for others. You know, if you think of like a spear or something, it's the tip that goes in first. You don't put the blunt in and if you're trying to make a, a cut. So I get that there's a little bit more drama when you're, you're visionary like that, but I really appreciate the reminder about the importance of patience. What would you say is your driving value? What, what is your core value that you hold to? I, I, I think it's going to be this concept of humanity that it's our God given, um, or it's our innate, uh, desire to make the world a better place and to never give up. So for anybody who, who wants to give up or thinks about giving up, it's not within, within our DNA to give up. We just keep going. Uh, and so that's the, that's the, the the part of me that I probably would associate with the value is you just keep going because that's what it is to be human is to make the world a better place and never stop. And earlier you mentioned there are lessons we, we still need to learn. What would you say is the biggest lesson you hope we get right away? Uh, this, this would be my one negative comment. I would, I would say I, I, I fear that social media has has boiled down every conversation into a headline. Uh, and that's the, many of the conversations I have with people who are fighting and uh, on, I, on whatever side they're fighting for, they, they boil everything down to a headline. And we are not, I don't think, built that way as humans. I think we need to get all of our feelings and emotions out and you just can't do that. In a tweet or on a Facebook post, you have to, you have to connect with somebody and let them know how you're feeling. Uh, and that's the only way that we, in my opinion, that we move forward is we have to really put it all out there and it's going to be painful. I, I think we have to put it all out there about why we feel the way we do. But once that happens, it allows us to build bridges and 
connect us in a way that we haven't been connected in a long time. So you're saying people need to be authentic and honest and have conversations that lead to being real and connecting. That, that would be a better way to say that. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's, it's so, it's one of those things that it's like so obvious in a sense, but because it's right in front of our face, sometimes we do miss that. And particularly around social media, not necessarily being as aware of how the algorithms are designed to keep you on that site. So they give you things that you kind of already like and agree with and reinforce your worldview. So that, there's so much to unpack that we could do a whole nother episode just on that. I want to know what's on your playlist right now. What are you listening to that motivates you, that inspires you? Or let me give you actually a more direct question. What song would you say would be your theme song for Las Vegas? Uh, so the, the song that I most often sing uh, to my children at night is Blackbird by Beatles. Uh, so both my kids know that song and that's, the, that's just the most requested song that, that I personally sing. So I have a little, a little, uh, picture frame with the words in, on my desk in the back. And, uh, that's, that's my kid's song. So that's my song. So when you say you sing it to them, are you a singer? Uh, no, I'm a terrible <laughs> you're like, not at all. <laughs> I, I say I am anything to my children. So I, I sing at night to them and we go through twinkle, twinkle. Um, you are my sunshine. And then I end with uh, blackbird. Oh my gosh. That is, um, what do I say after that? Wow. I love it. And you're right. Kids, you're, I mean, what else do they know? They don't know that it's bad yet, <laughs> but I, I don't think it would be bad if you were doing it. My mom used to sing, she still sings all the time, but she used to sing to me and I just watch her just in amusement, like my own personal little entertainment machine, fond memories there. Last question for you. If you had the opportunity to go anywhere and deliver one message, where would that place be? And what would that message be? Uh, so this is going to sound like a recurring record. I am super excited when schools can kind of open up again and I can go be a volunteer at, at my kid's school. And my, my plan is I'm going to, I told you earlier, my son had called me boring. So my, my plan is I was going to go into the classroom and have a, a fire hats to give out and police badges to give out and little foam soccer and hockey balls or soccer balls and hockey pucks. And I was going to be the coolest dad in the, in the, in the room because uh, what's most important in the message that I would give to little children is you can be anything you want in the entire world and don't let anybody tell you you can't because um, I never thought I'd be sitting in a world where I got to pretend I'm a fireman or pretend I'm a policeman or pretend I work in parks and recreation or cultural affairs and I can do anything I want to do. And so I would love to be able to help children understand that there's so much opportunity in the world if they believe in themselves. That would be the message for me. Simply mm. beautiful. And yeah, reaching our, our kids is not just our future, they're our present. And that's so important. I ask every guest this, and this is how we'll close today. How do you define compassion? Uh, you know, I, I, I think about my daughter hugging the little boy who was crying. And it's, it's about letting him know that you're heard, you're seen, you're you're cared for, you're loved, and being present. It's, it's, for me, it's 
Kate hugging that little boy, uh, putting her head on his shoulder and closing her eyes and letting him get all of his feelings out. I think that's the most compassion we can offer. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today, Brian. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for the work you're doing for our city, for raising those two incredible kids and making our future brighter because of that. And I just want to say that everything we've talked about today has been such a powerful theme throughout our season. I'm amazed at how the stars align and consciousness aligns. So you've given me great hope and to our listening and viewing audience, I hope that you've been inspired and also received hope from this incredible human. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Compassionate Las Vegas the podcast. I am Will Rucker. And until we meet again, I want to remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop and what you do matters. So live compassionately. I'll see you next time.